Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Jesse Bartholomew. Today, I'm going to tell you all about something that took place in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. And this one was kind of weird for me to research because I know that I had relatives in the area at the time, and I couldn't help but wonder in the back of my mind as I did the research if any of them were somehow involved in this. Anyway, most of what I'll be telling you today is from an article called The Louisville Riots of August 1855 by Wallace S. Hutchin Jr., and that was written in 1971. So thank you to the Kentucky Historical Society for making that available in full. And now we will get into this event, which you might know as Bloody Monday. This episode will include some brief but pretty intense descriptions of some of the violence that occurred on Bloody Monday, so just a heads up, listener discretion advised. In the 1850 census, only 4% of the Kentucky population was, quote, foreign-born. This was a low number compared to most other states, but that 4% was densely populated in the city of Louisville. Out of 43,000 people, over 12,000 were foreign-born. Roughly 7,300 of them were from Germany, and around 3,100 were from Ireland. Um, And of the total population in Kentucky in 1850, about 20,000 people were Catholic. There was a great deal of commercial and industrial growth at this time in Louisville, and so there was a huge need for laborers. So as these immigrants made their way up the Ohio River, a lot of them ended up stopping around the falls of the Ohio for job opportunities. Um, This upset some people, and these people were referred to as nativists. Nativists were typically members of the American Party, also known as the Know-Nothing Party, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, The irony is not lost here that this group of, quote, nativists was not made up of people actually native to that land, but colonists and settlers whose families had come over on a boat themselves not all that long ago. As soon as they started arriving, nativists would spread rumors about these newcomers that they were paupers, criminals, the mentally insane. Um, And these nativists' thoughts they didn't really gain much traction at first, um, and they, they really didn't have any say politically. Um, in the 1849 Constitutional Convention, the nativists had virtually no voice, and the ideas of religious freedom were maintained. But after that 1849 convention, and up until Election Day in August of 1855, things really changed. So, of course there were certain factors that accelerated the conflict in Louisville. For one, there was the arrival of European revolutionaries in 1848. Um, And I'll quote directly from Hutchin Jr. here. Quote, Louisville became a rendezvous for both the most intelligent and the most far-out elements of the revolutionaries. Labor union leaders and revolutionary writers and editors out of a job flocked there. Socialists, and even some early communists came to the River City. Press activity became one of the factors that stirred up Native Americans against the new breed of foreigners. 
George Philip Dern and Otto Schaefer founded the Louisville Anzeiger to report old country news in the German language. Nativist resentment was thus aroused by the continued interest in the old country and the clinging to the old ways. So it sounds like the nativists were upset that instead of conforming to their way of life, the foreigners were bringing their culture to Louisville. And the nativists were like, oh no, we're not having this. Now there was this set of revolutionary ideas which came to be known as the Louisville Platform. Um, And they condemned race and class privilege, they condemned slavery, and surprisingly, Jesuits and the Pope. Because you see, not all these German immigrants were Catholic. In fact, many of them were not. They printed these ideas in the Louisville platform to distribute far and wide. And so the nativists were like, well, now these new people are basically telling us that everything is wrong with our society and pointing out all these issues that we don't think are issues. So that, you know, caused a major rift that had already been sort of forming under the surface. Another event that really upset the nativists was the visit from the papal nuncio. I'll I'll not get this right, but it was um, Monsignor Gaetano Bedini from Brazil, and he was visiting several U.S. cities uh, in 1853 and 1854. And the rumor started that he was being sent to the U.S. by the Pope to strengthen his influence in the States and make the Pope a, quote, permanent fixture. Things started getting more political when the question of whether or not these foreign-born people should be allowed to vote in other states like Kansas and Nebraska was raised. Before that, smaller groups had t- like made attempts to create a large nativist political party, but the idea had never really stuck. Until the American Party. Uh, the American Party grew out of the secret order of the Star-Spangled Banner. And their mission was simply put to keep Catholics out of political office. Uh, Here's some of their writing to give you an idea of where this group was coming from. Quote, Like a clap of thunder from a brilliant sky, it, the American party, has waked up millions of native-born citizens from their slumbers to contemplate the dangers which threaten their altars and their hearths. Startled from the repose of security which a conscious integrity of purpose and action inspire, They look with horror upon the uncovered snares which a stealthy foreign hand has framed to strangle the foster mother that shelters and nourishes those outcasts who fled to her bosom protection. So the American Party was also known as the Know-Nothings, like I said, and it's because they were instructed to respond to all questions with, I don't know. So they were just like a very secretive group. Um, And according to Hutchin Jr., there were a few main reasons why people joined this group and why it grew pretty exponentially from 1853 to 56. First, people really didn't want to lose their right to keep slaves, plain and simple. Uh, the, The new groups were, they perceived them to be a threat to that. A lot of them were abolitionists and the nativists wanted to keep their slaves. Second, The party was an appealing choice for ex-Whigs who were just looking for some new affiliation to oppose the Democrats. Third, 
Some people just had a, quote, pure hatred against Catholics, foreigners, or both. The ex-Whig party factor was especially significant in Kentucky because of Henry Clay. Henry Clay kept losing presidential elections. I think he lost three times, and then he passed away in 1852. But before he died, he largely blamed the immigrant vote for his losses. And so this kind of fueled the fire for the Kentucky branch of the American party. There were rumors of secret meetings being held all over towns, Um, A member of the party was elected to a local government position in Louisville, and they were looking at state elections next. In 1854, an ordinance was passed by the Louisville City Council that no Catholic or foreign-born person could be employed as a teacher in the city of Louisville. And then on April 7, 1855, a know-nothing named John Barbie was elected mayor. There was a little rioting in response to this, but no major destruction, no casualties. Um, So also in April of that year, a foreign group formed to oppose the know-nothings. They were called the Sognics, the say-nothings, and this group was made up of both German and Irish immigrants. So now this opposing group existed, but at this point it was just tension and like verbal conflict and going back and forth in the press. There were no major violent incidents until Election Day on August 6, 1855. Now, the newly ratified state constitution had no provisions about selecting election officials from all major parties. And at the time, the American Party controlled the court of Jefferson County, and so all election official appointees were members of the American Party. And all the city councilmen were know-nothings, too. And everybody made sure that no additional polling places were set up in areas with higher immigrant populations. The Saturday night before the Monday election, the know-nothing party held a torchlight procession with 1,500 people through the streets of Louisville. And before the polls even opened on election day, Police officers who were members of the American Party took their positions outside polling places, ready to turn away anyone not showing the sign of the party, which was some sort of little yellow ticket. The polls were open from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., and most people tried to get in before noon to cast their vote, kind of sensing that things might go haywire, I think. And they did. Things turned violent early in the day when a few voters who weren't able to produce their yellow tickets were roughed up by police and turned away from voting. No deaths were reported from this first incident, although someone was killed before 9 a.m. that day. His name was George Berg, or sometimes it's written Burge, and he was savagely beaten to death on the street by a group of, quote, angry Irishmen. We don't know the exact circumstances of how this situation escalated the way it did, but we can pretty safely assume it had something to do with someone not being allowed to vote. The first real riot of Bloody Monday didn't start until about 4 o'clock that day, and that took place in the German district, which was located in the first ward in the east end of Louisville. 
and the second riot started a little later, around 6 o'clock, and that one went till midnight. And that occurred in the Irish district in the 8th ward in the west end of town. Now keep in mind, as you're listening to this, that several members of the Know Nothing Party, as well as many professional gamblers, had bet massive sums of money on the Know Nothing Party winning the elections. So here's how things escalated. Mobs of the American party started combing the streets of Louisville on election day looking for trouble. And they wanted to stop anyone who may have been Catholic or foreign-born, okay? So they start parading down the streets of the German district, and that's when gunshots started firing from the windows of German-owned houses. And this only fed the mob's fire, so they marched on to St. Martin's Church on Shelby Street, and they had this idea that the Catholics had been storing weapons in all the Catholic churches around town. So they were actually met at this church by Mayor Barbie himself. And he, remember, he was a member of the American Party. But he stopped them and he said, look, you can't destroy this church. There are no weapons here. Let's disperse. Let's not do this. So instead of backing down. They they didn't destroy the church, but they actually met up with another angry mob. This one heavily armed with muskets and bayonets, and they were even hauling a cannon around through the streets. So next, that group gathered at Armbruster's Brewery and burnt it to the ground. Before they burnt it down, they stole a bunch of beer and they got drunk. So when they were done with all that, They were pretty tired, you know? That's a lot of work in one day. So things did calm down after that, in that part of town. So now let's talk about what happened in the Irish district. Um, This started similarly to the German district, although... Things really escalated after a couple of guys were walking through the Irish district and one of them, named Theodore Rhodes, was killed. Um, I don't have any details really about that. I just know that this man died and people from the Know Nothing Party paraded through the streets of the Irish district and again, people started shooting in their direction from inside Quinn's Row, which was a group of row houses on Main Street owned by a rich Irishman named Patrick Quinn. And so this mob responded by setting fire to the entire row of houses, burning 12 of them to the ground, some with their inhabitants trapped inside. Quinn himself was confronted by the angry mob, and he offered to give them all his money. He's like, I'll give you all my money, but let's just be cool here. They accepted. They took his money. And then they killed him. When the fire department showed up to try to put out the fires, the know-nothings told them they would destroy their fire hoses if they tried to put out the fires. And violence continued until late into the evening. So around midnight, a group of know-nothings marched to two newspaper buildings, the Louisville Times and the Democrat. And they were stopped by George D. Prentice who was the editor of the pro-know-nothing newspaper, the Louisville Journal. 
So th- this that's a really interesting aspect of this, and I'll talk about it more later. But for now, I want to keep talking about what happened that day. So, you know, there were all these major acts of violence going on outside in the streets. There were also instances of brutal violence in people's homes. Um, an old German man was in bed asleep when he was pulled awake and shot to death in his home. Many others were beaten and, I mean, frankly, tortured. Um, this is awful. One man was stabbed with a pitchfork, and uh, he didn't die right away. So he was paraded down the streets with the pitchfork still stuck in him. Uh, the people who survived but were injured were not taken to hospitals, but for the most part to jail. Um, even though most of them were not the instigators, but the, the victims... Um, according to the article written by Hutchin Jr., which, remember, is a little dated. It's from 71. Uh, he says we don't have an exact figure for how many people died on Bloody Monday. Although, he gives a range of anywhere from 14 to 100. Um, I think we've narrowed that down over time. Now you'll see between 19 and 22. And 22 is the number that's used the most now. And it's generally believed that the majority of those deaths were foreign-born. So let's talk about some of the key figures in Louisville who played some sort of role in this conflict. And we'll start with Martin John Spaulding. Spaulding was a Catholic priest born in Marion County, Kentucky in 1810. He enrolled at St. Mary's College at age 12 and at 14 became a professor of mathematics. He graduated in 1826 and was sent to Rome for additional study after that. He received his doctorate in 1834 and returned to Kentucky a year later as a priest. And in 1848, he was named second bishop of Louisville. So he was concerned, okay, as one would be. In 1853, even, he was telling people, maybe stay home. Maybe don't get involved. Maybe lay low. So here's a direct quote. Quote, Your attendance at anti-nativist meetings can do no good, while our holy religion can surely receive no injury from attacks so utterly reckless and unprincipled. Therefore, let every Catholic stay peaceably at home. So ahead of the August 6th election, there were rumors that Bishop Spaulding was organizing the Catholics to fight back. And this is also where the idea started that there might be weapons being stored in all the Catholic churches in town. These rumors couldn't have been further from the truth. Nobody was stockpiling weapons, and he was telling people to stay calm and remain peaceful. He even subtly hinted that it might be best for personal safety for Catholics to avoid the polls on election day, which is actually so sad. Now let's talk about George Prentice. Now remember I mentioned that he was the editor of the Louisville Journal, which leaned in favor of the Know Nothing Party. But he actually stopped the angry mob of know-nothings from destroying the other newspaper buildings. But he also put all the blame on the, quote, foreigners 
after Bloody Monday. So here's an excerpt of his writing in the journal. Quote, With shameless effrontery and in the face of undeniable facts, the anti-American newspapers of this city are striving to ward off from their party the odious responsibility of having caused the disgraceful riots and horrid butcheries of Monday. The blame, however, will attach itself to those who drew the first blood. Of these offenses, the American party is entirely guiltless. It can fearlessly stand up before the community, whose peace has been ruthlessly destroyed, and say with conscientious truth, Shake not thy gory locks at me, thou canst not say I did it. And so the other Louisville newspaper responded and said, quote, In the presence of heaven, before this community, we deny, utterly deny, that the aggressions in the lower part of the city on Monday afternoon came from the foreigners. They were knocked down and brutally beaten, pursued and fired at. Every man's home is his castle, and forced as they were to the wall, they defended themselves as they best could. Prentice was not a Kentucky native. He was born in Connecticut in 1802. He went to Brown. He reportedly studied 19 hours a day. He taught for a while. He studied medicine and law. And he graduated at the head of his class in 1823. And then he became the editor of the New England Weekly Review in Hartford. And around that time is when he became a fan of Henry Clay. And he started writing about Henry Clay. And... Henry Clay's circle back in Kentucky got word of this guy, and they thought he should come down south and write Clay's biography. So Prentice was 28 when he arrived in Kentucky. And after he finished Clay's biography, he agreed to stay in Louisville and write for the Louisville Journal, promoting Clay's policies. Now, I'm a little upset with myself that I didn't include this in episode 38, which you should listen to if you'd like to hear more about Kentucky dueling. But Mr. Prentice was no stranger to dueling. And uh, newspaper editors, it was pretty common for them to challenge one another to duels. I mean, they were like the cowboys of the press. And so in 1833, he accepted a challenge from James Trotter, who was the editor of the Kentucky Gazette. And Prentice was smart, okay? And he figured out that James Trotter was nearsighted. And so he got to decide what distance they would shoot from. And he chose a distance that was further than average. And so the story goes that Trotter just kind of fired off randomly. And um, then Prentice just walked up to him, threw him on the ground, pinned him, and said, quote, How easily I could take your pitiful life you insignificant villain, you would-be assassin, but I would not dirty my hands with the blood of such a villain. It's so, so dramatic, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's a direct quote. Um, Interestingly, though, it doesn't seem that Prentice was really much concerned with anti-Catholicism or nativism prior to the mid-1850s, and frankly, we're not really sure what caused his shift in thinking, um, it's probably just the influence from the group of people he fell in with in Kentucky and being a Clay supporter. But shortly before Election Day, he wrote something in the paper that included this. Quote, Americans, are you all ready? We think we hear you shout ready. 
Well, fire, and may heaven have mercy on the foe. So people looked back at this after Monday and they were like, well, this is all your fault, buddy. And so after Bloody Monday, he had to go and defend himself regarding that statement. So he wrote this, quote, None but a wretched idiot can think that such expressions referred to the literal use of cannons, guns, or pistols at the polls. For we all know that political papers from time immemorial have fallen into the adoption of military phraseology in rallying their friends to the ballot box. So basically, it sounds to me like he's calling the nativists wretched idiots. Uh, So he did defend his writing. But remember, on election day, he did talk down that angry mob, and according to Hutchin Jr., he helped de-escalate other situations that day, too. Now, I'm not defending him. I just want to make sure you guys understand this, this guy's role in this was complex. Um, and after his death, Henry Watterson said this about George Prentice. Quote, from 1830 to 1861, The influence of Prentice was perhaps greater than the influence of any political writer who ever lived. There was a statue of Prentice in front of the main branch of the Louisville Free Public Library. Uh, It was removed in 2018. So who really was to blame for the events of Bloody Monday? It's generally agreed that what started everything was the know-nothing party using violence and intimidation to keep people from voting on election day, plain and simple. A lot of blame was placed on Prentice and his newspaper for writing inflammatory pieces. But at the same time, even Prentice had said in the past that part of the issue was that there wasn't enough polling places set up and spread throughout the city. Plus, He only really got involved in 1854-5, and the build-up to all of this started way before he was even on the scene. Again, I'm not defending him. I'm just saying you can't put it all on this guy. Um, So there are some other names you might be familiar with who more or less had something to do with Bloody Monday. I'm sure you all have heard of John J. Crittenden. He'll get his own episode at some point. Um, Crittenden was a senator. He was the U.S. Attorney General for a while. And the night before Election Day, he was out making speeches about how great the American Party was. So that didn't help. Also, some tried to blame Mayor Barbie. And yes, he was a member of the party, but he was also brand new. He had only been elected a few months prior. And so some would say, you can't put it all on him for there not being enough polling places, that fault should be assigned to the mayor before him, which was Mr. James S. Speed, another name with which you might be familiar. So ultimately, as with so many other big climactic events like this one, it was just the perfect storm of things. Not enough polling places, powerful and corrupt political party with powerful spokespeople, um, voter intimidation, biased newspapers, so on and so forth, right? And then also this, which I'd like to say with a direct quote from Hutchin Jr. And, quote, those unhappy traits, prejudice and bigotry based on ignorance, 
that were a dominating force in American life in the 1850s and that sadly have to be taken into consideration whenever analyzing the American character. Well said, sir. So what happened after Bloody Monday? Well, for obvious reasons, the know-nothings won the election by a landslide. But then they were kind of surprised by what happened after that. Everybody was. Um, The governor they elected, Charles S. Moorhead, said this during his inaugural address. Quote, The Constitution of our state secures to all the enjoyment of equal rights and privileges. The native and the adopted citizen are placed on terms of perfect equality. So yeah, that was a surprise. Um, Other than that, though, a lot of immigrants who would have settled in Kentucky decided to go elsewhere, which is sad to think about. The areas that were burned down just sat untouched for a while as a reminder of what happened. Um, Property values sank. And the commercial and industrial boom the city was experiencing came to a short-term halt. Interestingly, a lot more people joined the Catholic Church in Louisville after Bloody Monday. And this next part is just, wow. The Know Nothing Party was basically a big fat failure after Bloody Monday. Uh, There was some turmoil within the party over certain issues. Slavery being the biggest. Uh, Some wanted to abolish slavery. Others were still in favor. So in June of 1857, they met in Louisville. They abolished their oaths and they disbanded the Kentucky organization. So just two years after wreaking absolute havoc on the city of Louisville, the group ceased to exist. In April 1865, a German, Mr. Phil Tompert, was elected mayor of the city of Louisville. And finally, I'd like to read you part of a letter written by Abraham Lincoln to Kentuckian Joshua F. Speed, and this was written three weeks after Bloody Monday. Lincoln wrote, quote, I am not a know-nothing. That is certain. How could I be? How could anyone who abhors the oppression of Negroes be in favor of degrading classes of white people? Our progress and degeneracy appears to me to be pretty rapid. As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, I shall prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty. To Russia, for instance, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of hypocrisy. I wanted to thank you all for listening to this episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. This is probably one of the more important topics I've covered on the show so far. Um, I'll link to some additional resources on the website, kyhistoryhaunts.com, if you want to learn more. There are some newspaper articles you can see from the day after. Uh, There's a great article from the Filson Club Quarterly from 1996, so you can check all of that out. It's important to know that this happened. 
and why it happened and how it happened. These are things we can still learn from. Uh, I won't get on my soapbox. I promised myself I wouldn't. Um, I'm sure you all get it. Uh, just wait till I cover the 1968 race riots. I won't be able to get off my soapbox. Um, but for now, I'll just say, be nice to each other. Treat each other fairly and with respect. And um, share this episode with your friends. If you haven't shared one yet, share this one. So as always, thank you for listening and supporting. And until next time.